Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget, there's a donate button on the homepage at analysis.news. If you don't help us with a little bit of money, we can't do this. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development has released its 2020 report titled From Global Pandemic to Prosperity for All, Avoiding Another Lost Decade. It's an excellent review of our current situation and full of proposals about what to do about it. Here's a few quotes from the document. The world economy is experiencing a deep recession amid a still unchecked pandemic. Now is the time to hammer out a plan for global recovery, one that can credibly return even the most vulnerable countries to a stronger position than they were before. The status quo ante is a goal not worth the name, and the task is urgent for right now, History is repeating itself, this time with a disturbing mix of both tragedy and farce. If governments opt for premature fiscal tightening in an attempt to bring down public debt and businesses adopt an aggressive cost-cutting strategy in an attempt to boost exports, the recovery will likely fizzle out with a double-dip recession and a real possibility in many countries in 2022. Further down, the report states, the rise of footloose capital and its greater freedom to move production and investment around the globe has over recent decades strengthened the bargaining power of capital compared to that of labor. This has triggered a steady increase in the share of income going to profits that began well before the global financial crisis, but continued after it. In the last decade, the profit share has increased in all but three G20 countries. If these pre-COVID-19 forces of wage repression remain in place, the labor share will likely continue its decline in many economies in the next years, exacerbating inequalities. In the United States, after a 50-year descent, the labor share is now back to its 1950s level. If current trends continue in 10 years' time, it will be back to the brink of the abyss level of 1930. Let me do that one again, and I mean to do that one again. The wages will go down to the levels of pre-crash in 1930. Now joining us from Geneva to discuss the report is its principal author, Richard Kozel-Wright. He is the Director, Division of Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD. That's the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. He's the author of, also the author of Transforming Economies, Making Industrial Policy Work for Growth, Jobs, and Development. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation, Paul. So we're going to do a sort of series of interviews about the report. It's very rich in analysis and I think requires more than, you know, just one podcast. So this is going to, I don't know how many it's going to wind up being, but we're going to work our way through the report and really dig into various paragraphs uh, because uh, it's, a, it's a great take, I think, on how we got here as well as some important proposals about what to do. So bef- let's just start with this line right off the top in the introduction. Uh, wh- why do you think history is repeating itself with a disturbing mix of tragedy and farce? I mean, what we want to do partly in in the report is to um, remind people about what was promised in 2009 after what many of us expected would be a transformative shock, Uh, you know, the the kind of gloss of of neoliberalism and hyper-globalization 
uh, uh, peeled off and, and, and we were expecting uh, significant changes. And the G20 meeting in London in 2009 promised big changes, you know, led by Gordon Brown. Um, there was talk of a new Bretton Woods. There was talk of a Sarkozy, I think, talked of a new international economic order. Um, and, you know, there were signs that that was going to happen. The, the initial reaction to the crisis, as you know, was, was uh, expansionary um, and to, to some extent coordinated by the G20 itself. There was talk about reform and regulation of the financial system. Uh, there was a recognition that developing countries needed particular help. Uh, I mean, there was the, much the kind of talk that we hear today about recovering better. We were beginning to hear in, in 2009. And, but very quickly, once the, once the uh, balance sheets of banks had been put into some sort of order and financial markets had regained something of their poise, um, we know that, that the, the major economies reverted back to a kind of combination of austerity and re-globalization of free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties as a way to export your way out of the crisis and attract foreign direct investment. This is especially in Europe where Germany beat the hell out of Greece and Spain and Portugal and Yeah, and but and beyond Europe too. I mean it was a, it was the it was it became, I mean with the exception of China to some extent it became the and of course on and and the one kind of Impulse, the kind of expansionary impulse that that was retained was um, unorthodox monetary policy, uh, quantitative easing, in its various forms, and 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 that combination of of uh, of austerity, uh, unorthodox monetary policy, and and um, reglobalization, you know, produced this very weak, prolonged but weak recovery, uh, and. And papered over all the um, underlying conditions that had produced the crisis in the first place. Uh, you know, financial markets were they were they were slapped on the wrist, and and, and you know the legislation Dodd Frank and other things did put some constraints on some of the bigger banks. A lot of the financial activity, as a consequence, shifted into into the shadow banking sector inequalities you know wages remained largely stagnant inequalities increased you know the most of the liquidity that was pumped into the economies uh, moved into financial markets uh, and and we got we got a asset price bubble and 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 you know and we got and we got the the, the kind of conditions that 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 were present uh, just before COVID-19 were precisely the kind of, uh, before the COVID-19 hit, were precisely the conditions that we'd seen in place in the run-up to the financial crisis. Huge accumulation of debts in both the public and private sector, uh, growing income uh, disparities, weak productive investment. These were the, you know, these were the features uh, of the global economy in, in 2019. And, 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 you know, and then the pandemic hit, and not only did it reveal those underlying conditions, but it exaggerated them as well. And so, so you know, part of this is a reminder of people about we have been here before, and if we repeat the kind of uh, response that that uh, emerged out of uh, the global financial crisis, then we're in for an even worse decade than the last decade. 
given given that we we didn't deal with the the problems uh, that we inherited from that crisis. So so that's I guess that that you know we we want to try and in this report remind people about about the about the failures of the response to the global financial crisis as a warning of what could come if we don't if we don't do something different this time and do you see signs that that's what's happening there has been a and a lot of talk about doing things differently and of course things have been done i mean the the fiscal component in some countries in in stimulus packages has been more significant there's been talk of a and a kind of de facto universal basic income has been employed in many countries and and the notion of a basic income has now become kind of fashionable again um, you know, mon- modern monetary theory has become part of the lingua franca of of, of policy circles. Uh, uh, if if it's not clear that everyone understands what they mean by that, um, you know, the the uh, the Financial Times, which we, we which we quote liberally in this in this report in its editorials, you know, has taken a pretty radical line. You know, this is the only way to get out of this crisis if is if you know. Government takes a strong, active role if redistributional policies are are put into place. If if public services are given the resources that are needed to to build resilience uh, into in, into society. So so I mean you've you've a lot of that you know a lot of the kind of language that that we have been um, pushing over the last decade has certainly surfa- uh, surfaced. Uh, uh, since since uh, March of this year, um, of course, you know we also get the inflation hawks um, beginning to be heard. We get the voices about you know that we can't continue with these levels of debt beyond uh, early 2021 uh, without major imbalances uh, uh, undermining the economy. So you know I think it's a mixed picture, to be honest, right? I mean, you can see it in the United States. Jay Powell says, on the one hand, he's going to keep interest rates down at 0% for the next three years. At the same time, the uh, the Congress can't come up with a with a follow-up to the CARES Act and goes on holiday. I mean, I mean, so there's, there's real, I mean, I think, I think it's, I think we're in a knife edge situation, really. Well, as, as we speak, there was a report just about a few minutes ago uh, that Nancy Pelosi is back in negotiations with Mnuchin. And, uh, and, and she said that maybe Trump coming down with COVID might change the, di- the dynamic of the negotiations. <laughs> like it takes Trump getting sick for them to realize there needs to be a stimu- another stimulus package is kind of part of the insanity of our times. Huh? I mean, I believe also there are, you know, there's evidence as, as the, you know, as some of the payments have come to an end, there's evidence of immediately of declining incomes for certain groups in the over the course of the last month in the US too, you know, because, I mean, you know, you can't paper over the kind of shock to employment the threat of, um, of of being evicted from housing for for very long in the United States, where where most most of the working population are living paycheck paycheck to paycheck, and a and a five hundred dollar emergency spending will 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 lead to a major crisis. So you know, I, 
I think it's a it's a it's a very precarious situation that many people face. In one of your in the report, in one of the paragraphs, you use the sentence: "Governments need to just keep spending as much as they have to." And it's interesting. I actually listening to Bloomberg Radio heard a head of one of the larger hedge funds say almost exactly those words, which was kind of interesting to hear from Wall Street, that governments should just keep spending in terms of stimulus. Now, we know a ton of that money they just keep spending is actually going right to Wall Street and is propping up the stock markets. But it, but in this conversation I was listening to, uh, the, the person was all talking about the need to prop up uh, people's incomes as long as necessary because what would follow would be catastrophic. So it seems like a section of finance has changed their minds about this kind of uh, stimulus, at least in these conditions. On the other hand, the Republican Party, which reflects a lot of the elites and certainly sections of finance, uh, on the whole, uh, seem to be already starting the austerity language. We will, I, I look, I mean, I think there are, I think there are s- sections of finance that understand that you know the private given the shock to the system the private sector cannot spend spend its way out of this crisis right i mean uh, businesses have not only accumulated large debts um uh, but they're uncertain about their future markets and they won't be investing significantly over the over the coming period and, and how similarly households you know fear for their job security they also have accumulated very large debts over the course of the last decade and and you know they they're not going to run out and be spending large amounts of whatever uh, income that they have available to themselves to them so so yeah there's and and you can't exp- i mean there's that always that hope that somehow you can export your way out of the crisis right that somehow if you if you do if you do keep wages low then then somehow you will gain competitiveness and you will be able to to uh to uh, uh, boost demand uh, through through export growth but you know that's not a sol- that's not a solution available to uh uh, all economies um, to some extent there are i mean i think china's recovery partly refre- partly reflects a, a successful um, uh, in- improvement in its in, in its export performance at that, all the evidence points points to that but that's not a strategy that's available to the global economy in its entirety well the, the united states uh, when they look at these issues especially if you look at domestic media uh, they barely look at really what's going on in the rest of the world. And, and if you think there's going to be an increase of the export market in much outside of China and maybe Japan, but much of Asia, uh, Africa and Latin America, uh, people better think again. I am quoting from your report, uh, the urgent need for increased health spending along with declining tax revenues combined with a collapse in export earnings and pending debt payments has exposed a two to three trillion dollar financing gap in the developing world, which the international community has so far failed to address. Let me add a little comment to that, which is it's more than they've failed to address. They're looking at ways to take advantage of the situation. Uh, Let me continue quoting. The inability of the international community to agree on comprehensive debt standstills and write-downs, the resistance to rapid provision of appropriate levels of emergency liquidity, and the reluctance to rein in rogue bondholders in sovereign debt negotiations, along with the sight of vulture capital, 
already hovering ominously over distressed economies are early warning signs that things could get worse, far worse. And in the American media, American politics, uh, there's there's this crazy ignoring that if, if they think there's some continued propping up of the American economy, it's not even clear they can even, they're even really going to do that. But it, to think you can do it and let the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world, uh, go down the toilet, uh, they're crazy. But that seems to be what's happening. Uh, t- talk about that section of the report. To some extent, it just shows you how, how far we've kind of gone backwards. We quote at some point in the report the statement from Roosevelt in his address to the, the Bretton Woods conference which, which you know, kind of it's just – I think it's very apposite given the circum. Let me just read it because I think it does – it's worth reflecting on uh, given the current state of U.S. thinking and indeed on uh, the state of multilateralism more, more generally. But in, in, his addr- in his address to Bretton Woods, Roosevelt said, economic diseases are highly communicable. It follows, therefore, that the economic health of every country is a proper matter of concern to all its neighbors, near and distant. Only through a dynamic and soundly expanding world economy can the living standards of individual nations be advanced to levels which will permit a full realization of our hopes for the future. And, you know, I mean, that was in a way the principle of Bretton Woods that, that, you know, if we, we, in an interdependent world, uh, everyone needs to see their their boats rising, and that the and the multilateral system should be geared towards ensuring that the kind of expansionary conditions are are available to all. And clearly, that's not. I mean, it's certainly not. I don't think it's the attitude of of and not just this U.S. of this of the current U.S. administration. I think that's true of previous administrations too. And the Bretton Woods institutions do not. Operate uh, in in a way that uh, ensures a, a kind of, this kind of dynamic, expanding uh, global economy is the norm. On the contrary, their job has been to let loose uh, footloose capital uh, and and to uh, convince countries that the only way that they can uh, grow is to uh, import growth. Uh, by making their uh, economic environment attractive to foreign capital, which which is not a which does not have a good record, um, um, and so you know, and, and so you know, the alternative, as we try and suggest in the report, is that you know all countries need to be able to uh, expand uh, their economies through domestic resources. The problem, of course, for developing countries is that they lack the fiscal space to engage in the kinds of stimulus packages that we've already seen adopted in many of the uh, uh, G20 countries. Meaning they can't just create their own money the way the Americans can because because if they do, the international uh, finance will say, well, we don't believe your currency is worth anything anymore, so we're not going to loan you any more money. And they they face a a threat in that that environment. They face this threat of a deflationary spiral, which we already saw happen 
immediately after COVID-19 hit, right? And even before the health pandemic hit many developing countries, the immediate impact of the lockdown or the, and the likely lockdown was for capital to uh, dramatically flee emerging economies on a scale much bigger, in fact, than happened after the global financial crisis. And then you got this vicious circle kicking in, in which capital uh, dramatically fled the economy, currencies uh, collapsed, compounded by declining export revenues, declining remittances, uh, declining commodity prices, uh, that, that put further pressure on the, on the finances of developing countries. And, and you got this, this sense of a, of a, of a very vicious circle that, that developing countries have been experiencing on and off really since the, since the 1980s in one form or another. And so, so, you know, one of the big challenges that we see and try and offer solutions to in this, in this report is to find ways to, to expand the, policy space that developing countries can employ to to uh, allow governments in in the developing world to um, increase their own uh, domestic capacities uh, but to do so they they will rely on support from the international system and so far that support really has not been uh, forthcoming so you know so, so as, along with a lot of other people, we've called for the use of special drawing rights, which is this international reserve asset that is issued by the IMF as one way of ensuring that there is sufficient policy space for developing countries. And it's been so far uh, resisted as a new allocation. We suggest something in the order of a trillion dollars. And that's been resisted by the United States. Uh, uh, so far on various grounds, some of which are not completely unfair, but most of them are. Um, there's been almost, there's been no debt relief. There's been this exercise in suspending debt servicing of the 73 poorest countries. But I mean, the, the amounts involved are, are, are pitiful, right? I think, I think the amount in, in, in principle is something in the order of $12 billion, although, although, Many countries have not opted for that option because they think it has a negative impact on their credit rating and therefore might have problems subsequently in terms of their access to capital markets. So I, I don't know what the actual figure is, but it's it's in the it's in the ten billion dollar range. I mean, which is which is insignificant given the the amounts that you mentioned that we've calculated and the IMF has also calculated in terms of the likely financing constraint that developing countries are going to be facing over the next 18 months as a consequence of COVID-19. So so in that sense, the multilateral system has really not lived up to the expectations of people like Roosevelt and and uh, Dexter White and Morgenthau and Keynes when they hoped to establish a system that would precisely prevent austerity as the default policy option uh, for adjusting to any sort of external shock. So an American worker listening to our conversation, listening to a two to three trillion dollar hole in, in terms of the developing countries, uh, debt, and it's probably more than that, and uh, the need for uh, continued and uh, large scale uh, stimulus package, again, the second one in the United States, certainly on the, on the scale of at least another trillion or two trillion. Um, the scientists I'm reading uh, are really expecting that if the, once the Biden administration gets in, assuming it is, I mean, that's 
crazy shit can happen, but right now it looks like it will be in a Biden administration. Um, they're going to be facing an already deep depression, but very likely a second, third wave of the pandemic, uh, even to the point where they have to actually try to close down the entire American economy for a month or two months if they're going to get serious about preventing uh, even more out of control pandemic. Uh, but one way or the other, uh, a worker listening to this is going to say, well, where's all this money come from? What, what are the limits when you say uh, the government has to spend to keep spending as long as it takes, not only for the American economy, but really the Americans and Europeans, but mostly to a large extent, the, be the Fed, uh, helping uh, in, in developing countries? How, how long can they just keep spending as much as it takes? I mean, one of the, you know, in that, in that, you know, in that funny sense, one of the things that both the previous crisis and, and this crisis has tended to show is that, you know, there's a pretty limitless tap that can be turned on by countries that issue their own internationally accepted currency, right? I mean, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the, the things that we, that we have learned over the last decade. I mean, there are genuine constraints in terms of, uh, in, in terms of in potential inflationary threats, uh, in terms of structural bottlenecks in the, uh, kinds of sectors of the economy that that we want to see job creation taking place in, etc. But you know, from a from a purely monetary point of view, that you know the the there, there appears to be a I mean you know central bank balance sheets have just exploded enormously, uh, both after the global financial crisis and, and and after this crisis. So 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 you know that's that's not where the that doesn't seem to be where the constraint lies. Now, you know, we don't believe, I mean, in that sense, we're not really modern monetary theorists. We believe that there has to be uh, accompanying any sort of monetary expansion also uh, some res re resort to generating uh, tax revenues on a significant scale to balance the books over the longer term. And, and, and so we... We want to see, in addition to the use of monetary instruments, also uh, much more active use of fiscal instruments, both to generate revenues, but also to address the problem, the issue of inequality. I mean, if you if you go back to the point I made about the money that was being made available to the 73 poorest countries through debt servicing suspension, something in the order of $10 billion dollars. Over the course, according to the, I think it's the, the Institute for Policy Studies analysis recently, the wealth of American billionaires over the course of the pandemic has risen by something like $845 billion, right? And here we are patting ourselves on the back, saying that we might have found $10 billion for these, the, the world's 73 poorest countries. Uh, yeah. I mean, these kinds of inconsistencies, I think, that have been exposed by COVID-19 kind of do, you know, raise the issue of the tremendous imbalances that have built up in, in both within and across countries uh, under this hyper-globalization kind of model of, of growth and development over 20, 30 years. 
I think one of the things that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, uh, especially for ordinary people to understand, uh, in answering this question, how much can the Fed, the Treasury, and some of the other countries in somewhat similar situations, Europe, Canada, how much can they keep spending? Um, that, that this idea that if the Americans do too much of this, people will lose faith in the U.S. dollar. Even Ray Dalio, who's the head of some big hedge fund, is talking that way, and the Republicans talk about that. I don't know. It's hard to believe it. But the issue of how much wealth a country has has a lot to do with how much you trust that dollar, because whether they're taxing it now or taxing it later, it's there to be taxed. So you know it's there if it has to be there. And I saw the Brookings Institute in 2018 uh, did a study of how much wealth is in private hands in the United States. And that's 2018. As you say, it's a heck of a lot more now than it was in 2018. But they came up with the number of $98 trillion are in the hands of private individuals. Uh, this is assets after liabilities, so actual real assets. That's $98 trillion in theory could be taxed. So what they've done so far in terms of this stimulus spending is like nothing, uh, not even scratching the surface of the kind of wealth that's there. Yeah, and and, and which is, of course, why we have – Again, another you know measure that has surfaced over the course of the last few months: the idea of a wealth tax, which is, which you know has. I mean, we've we have advanced that in in some of the work that we've done, you know, over several years without getting any traction. But it's begun to get traction, I think, for the kinds of, for the very reasons that that you that you talked about. But I mean, behind all these problems, at least for us is the ongoing concern that we have that the rules of the international game continue to be rigged in favor of high wealth individuals and large international uh, corporations uh, that continue to accumulate these uh, huge amounts of, of wealth. And unless we have a serious conversation about those rules and, and what to do about them, all the talk all the talk of recovering better or building back better that we are now hearing will in the end amount to to very little because these are systemic problems these are not simply conjunctural problems that have emerged as a consequence of the spread of the pandemic but they are long-standing uh, structural problems that, that have been left to fester and, and when you look at the conversation that's going on in the american election campaign you get it's like a different level of degree of this kind of nationalism uh, between Biden and Trump, and this you know concept of beggar thy neighbor. Uh, I'm quoting from your document: ardent free marketers are using the disruption in international supply chains to push new rules on international trade and investment, and new privileges for owners of intellectual property and vital technologies that would further reduce the policy space. Of developing countries. Uh, so and it seems to me this is happening in two ways. One, in terms of trying to wanting to renegotiate trade agreements and, and impose uh, onerous regulation on developing countries not to protect themselves on issues of copyright and generic drugs and other sorts of things. But you hear Biden talking about, you know, everything needs to be produced in America. All government spending is going to be linked to uh, 
uh, American uh, production. Um, and th this idea that, you know, America will be okay if the rest of the world, rest, especially developing world, uh, doesn't matter. Yeah, Biden has, I, look, I, I, it's not something I follow closely. He did say that there would be no more trade agreements until he'd kind of sorted out the kind of some of the underlying uh, problems of the U.S. economy. And, and that, well, we ourselves, we, we in the report, we call for a moratorium on on certain t certain parts of the um, of the trade and investment uh, 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 rules and resulting disputes. Uh, and I think that's I think that's necessary. But I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, this, unfortunately, this gets caught up in the US in this debate about, about China, basically, as the, as being the, the reason why the, the multilateral trading system has somehow, um, uh, uh, been turned upside down in, re in recent years and no longer functions in a way that, 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 that works for the benefit of, of all of, of all players. And, you know, from a development point of view, that's just not a credible argument as far as we're concerned. The, 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 the Uruguay round was a set of rules and practices that were designed by the United States and, and the leading advanced economies to the advantage of the large corporations in key sectors of the, of the economy. Um, that you know that, and that includes, as you rightly say, a lot of the sectors that are now heavily dependent on intellectual property uh, rights, which should never have been included as part of the uh, rules of an international trading system. Even Bagwati eventually came round to kind of complaining, who was a, an ardent free trader, uh, Jagdish Bagwati came round to complaining about the inclusion of intellectual property. Uh, rules in the international trading system. But, you know, behind, again, behind that, I mean, we, you know, economists have this idea of international trade um, as comparative advantage where countries trade with each other based upon their factor endowments. But of course, countries don't trade with each other. Firms trade essentially with each other and, and, and international trade has become more and more dominated by these very large corporations that, are, you know, 1% of the world of corporations account for over 50% of global trade and, and they manage trade through the various, um, uh, affiliates, uh, that, that they control in ways that are based upon power relations and not on the niceties of, uh, of, of general equilibrium modeling. And that's a, a very different world that works significantly to the disadvantage of those countries that lack the capacities and the infrastructure and the skills required to be able to uh, engage in international trade in a in a constructive and, 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 and fulfilling way. So, you know, that and, and the current rules of the game, you know, continue to work against um, uh, many developing countries. And China's the exception that somehow has managed to swim in, we know partly why, has been able to swim in these waters uh, without, without getting eaten alive, which is what happened, which is what has happened to most 
developing countries. So, you know, I think it's going to be imperative moving forward that the the American policymakers somehow overcome this fixation they have with, with China and really take a very hard and frank look at the rules of the international trading system uh, in terms of whether they've been good for jobs, whether they've been good for effective demand, uh, whether they've good, been good for the environment. And they haven't, they, 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 because of the China syndrome, they don't seem to be able to kind of uh, take a dispassionate view of, of those rules. Well, we're going to pick up this conversation in a part two of our discussion and uh, just going to end with another quote from the document. The measure of our success cannot be whether we ward off another financial crisis and avoid increased public debt. Succeeding generations will not applaud higher share prices or fuller treasuries if we fail to meet the challenge and sacrifice an untold number of lives and livelihoods in the process. So thanks for joining us, Richard, and we'll come back for part two. And thank all of you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.